just be a couple more seconds. Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today we have back by popular demand, one of the most popular guests on Chef AJ Live. You love when he's on, you have so many questions. You tell me he's one of your favorites, and he doesn't really need an introduction, but in case you are unfamiliar with his work, he is a multiple New York Times bestselling author. His name is Dr. Joel Furman. Please welcome him to the show. It's so fun when you come on, Dr. Furman. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. And I enjoy it too as well. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I, I'm just so happy you could come on today because you know what tomorrow is, right? Oh, tomorrow? Yeah. I, Do you know what? Yeah. It's, it's a very dangerous holiday. I think it's the end of my fig season here in California. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's Halloween. And um, you know, I I I recently made a post on social media. I, Charles, can you get me the that's it bar so I can show them to Dr. Furman? So I've never lived in a place where I had trick-or-treaters. I either lived in an apartment where trick-or-treaters couldn't access or a 55 and over community. Get the that's it bars, please. And uh, I never had trick-or-treaters. And well, now I live in a community with nothing but kids. And I didn't want to give them sugar or poison is what I call it. So I found these bars at Costco that have two ingredients, apple and banana. They're just like a little dried fruit bar. And I was really excited. And I got these Pokemon cards and I posted on social media saying, look, parents, you don't have to give your kids poison this Halloween. And this lady kept arguing with me saying, well, she was a clinical mental health professional and it's posts like mine that create orthorexia and eating disorders and shaming. And and, blah, blah. and I said, are you familiar with the work of Dr. Joel Furman? Have you read Fast Food Genocide? No. So I'm here to ask you, I mean, is sugar poison? Should we feed it to our kids? Is it toxic or am I making too much of this? Uh, I got these little bars. I don't know if you've ever seen them. They're just- um, Well, just I got to go run to my refrigerator and do a plug for Dr. Furman G-Bombs bars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are you going to get trick-or-treaters, Dr. Furman? Oh, I don't think so. Because we're like fenced, you know, we have like a gate, gated, you know, but I don't think so. Um, but in any case, um, number one, I have G-bombs bars that are made with greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds, which are super healthy. But also when we were over the years um, of having trick-or-treaters come to our house in Fleming, New Jersey, we went to Oriental Trading Company and we'd have light-up necklaces, those things you bounce on a paddle with rubber balls, you know, shooting things out of, we gave toys, little toys away, you know. But you, the answer to your question is, um, do I think that candy and sugary treats are a form of drugging our children into disease into destructive habits that set the stage for um, more serious alcoholism, alcohol, and then more serious drug use, and is a major cause of opiate addiction as well, which causes millions of deaths worldwide. So I think um, sugar is more closer to effect of a drug than it is closer to a food. So I think it's more like a drug that affects the brain in the same areas where opiates affect the brain and makes you dopamine sensitive, craving food and not satisfied now with normal flavors. And now if kids don't want to eat fruits and vegetables. They need to have more highly flavored and more calorically dense substances to meet their need for, to meet their desires because they've been, and of course there's a dose dependent relationship between the consumption of candy and sugar in childhood and drug addiction and criminal behavior in adulthood. So much so that in the highest quintile or the highest fifth of candy consumption, we have the highest amount of criminality and drug-related offenses. And, and so much so that 
60% of people in the highest quintile of candy consumption are arrested for a drug-related offense or criminally or, 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 or another criminal offense by the time they're 35 years old. So we're talking about destruction to the human, destructions of the brain, and of course, sets the stage for cancer in later life. I also wrote a book. These are my two most um, books that are dear to my heart that have not become New York Times bestsellers. Two of my favorites that's, as well. That's I Disease Proof Your Child and Fast for Genocide. My two books that I like that I wrote because I had so much science and interest in those subject matters, and they're not the bestsellers. The bestsellers are The End of Heart Disease, The End of Diabetes, The End of Dieting, Super Immunity, you know, um, Eat to Live. So all my bestsellers are not some of the books that I feel are most, in, that because obviously the public is buying what they feel they need and they need for their own personal use. But the ones that are most interesting are just about societal, these societal issues, disease-proof your child, demonstrating that childhood diets have a more total contribution to the cause of cancer in later life than adult diets do. That what you eat from year zero to year 20, or you could say from year minus one when your mother's pregnant, what you eat from minus your birth, you know, when you're in the womb, what your mother ate, and the first 20 years of life has an overall most more impactful causation to later life death than what you eat between 20 and 70, you know, those 50 years. But in any case, um, this is, I, um, I would love people to, um, to be facile or to be able to understand these concepts that are introduced in these books that people have no idea how we're causing destruction in our children by teach by what we do when they're young you know well those are my two favorite all your books are great but those two are my favorites as well and why do you think they're not as popular is it because you're saying things that people just don't want to hear yes and people don't you know when you're saying to a person they can lose weight and heart disease reverse cancer then then people are interested in those books but books about just general societal benefits benefits of your, your long-term effects on children. The, the publisher told me right away that a book on childhood nutrition is not going to sell or be a bestseller compared to your books on weight loss and, and reversing diabetes and heart disease. You know what I mean? Well, you know, it, I just, it drives me crazy because I believe that any problems I'm having now is a result of the bad diet my mother had. She was morbidly obese and how I was fed as a child. And I can't turn back the clock, but I'm hoping to warn other people. But yet people say that I'm and you were too extreme, you know, with our, our style of eating. Which is really not, it's the opposite. We're not extreme enough because what I'm saying right now is when you have that background of poor nutrition, then it requires aggressive nutritional excellence so the body's miraculous ability to self-repair whatever damage was created in your younger life or in your prenatal life to refix those. And scientists call that gene silencing, right? And gene and, and immune surveillance, immune surveillance and gene silencing, which only gets fully activated when you eat super healthfully and just moderate changes in your diet and just losing weight in another way that's not as nutritionally excellent is not going to disable all the damage that has occurred when you were younger. So this, I, I was having this conversation this morning with one of my guests. He was going into different types of alternative, um, alternative treatments for people with cancer. And I was showing him the studies on conventional cancer therapies and alternative cancer therapies and showing the little effect they have 
on longevity compared to nutritional excellence. That when you look at the effects of flax seeds and onions and mushrooms on people with cancer, the effects are much greater at extending lifespan than any type of therapy, either alternative, ozone, transferring your blood, any type of whatever it is, chemo, any type of therapy is not as effective as excellent nutrition is at extending lifespan, even when a person has cancer. And that the most effective thing a person can do to extend their life is make this large scale dietary change. So I'm not saying that everybody has to do this. They can do whatever they want. They can choose to smoke cigarettes, but we were not radical when we're giving people information that's necessary for them to make these choices for their life if they want to not get cancer or not have a heart attack or not have a stroke or not get demented. Then we're just giving people information where they can take the power over their life and they can control their health destiny if they want to right? We're not forcing people to do it. Uh, you want to drink, go out drinking, and you want to go smoke cigarettes or snort cocaine or eat candy. You have that right. If you knew the, you have that right, but that right is better exercised for people who weren't addicts, didn't become addicted to substances. And if they were educated properly in childhood. So I'm saying, let's educate our population right from the educational system when they're young. And then let's see how many people chose to smoke, drink, eat candy, eat, you know, eat, eat fried foods, eat, you know, eat. So, and you'd see the much less. So we're not radical. I don't consider that you and I are radical. We are sane as everybody else is radically ignorant and causing tremendous amount of human tragedy. And because they're in the, they're in the majority, it makes us seem abnormal, you know? But even, you know, even many of the plant-based doctors feel like, you know, it's sugar, it's like dose dependent. So a little bit, it's okay. And you know, that's, what's going to make the medicine go down, if you will. Yeah. I'm finding that too. I'm listening to some plant-based people that I respect. And even I respect their ethics and their kindness. And I'm like, for, like I give examples of people I really respect and I even learn for them and consider, but they, but I feel that they're in their kindness they're making it too easy for people to not go all the way to excellent nutrition. And in doing so, because they're, you know, my experience has been when you ask people to do more, they do more. And when you tell them it's okay to do less, they do less. And when they do less and they don't really stop eating all those triggering substances, that lights the fire on their desires and makes them want those unhealthy things more. It's not, so I've become, you could say, more strict in my recommendations, while some other doctors are becoming less strict because they want to appeal to a broader audience or they want to not become, be seen as so radical. You know, I have those same desires in, in me. I don't want to be seen radical and I want to bring people in and not make them seem that they have to do this 100%. As you know, my number one best-selling book that sold multiple millions of copies was Eat to Live. And the many millions of copies that sold was maybe because it told people follow this strictly for six, for six weeks. And then after that six weeks period is over, do it. Not, you can do it 90% and still have 10% of calories and not on board with such healthy eating. And people like that and sold, you know, but I don't even recommend that anymore. I see too much that allowing people that 10% leeway messed a lot of people up. 
Oh my God. Especially people that are addicts, right? Especially people that are addicts. That's right. If you're not an addict, you can go and have something unhealthy once a month and twice or twice a month. It's not going to make you go binging uh, off the off the bandwagon. But we're seeing so many people that use that 10%, which then becomes 20%, which keeps their they never get really fully liking this way of eating. And it also keeps them under chronic stress because the stress is always making decisions whether they should be on or off. And when you've jumped into it 100%, there's no more stress. You've made the commitment and you're just living, choosing you to live this way. And then I'm, a, I'm doing this too myself. I never was obese or I had weight problems, but I'm doing it for just for good health and to be, you know, in my later years. And I struggle sometimes with overeating at night or wanting a second dessert or going to or eating till I was full and feeling full in my stomach when I go to bed at night. And I need encouragement and support to be doing this, you know, to, to want to eat the right amount of food and not overeat. And when I teach people this concept that the more days you put in a row of doing it right, the easier it gets to stay with it and do it right. I find that from, works better for me too. And I'm not even a food addict. And I still want to use food for emotional reasons and, and recreational reasons. It's not without any kind of, um, we all have desires to like good tasting food and want to eat more good tasting food. So we need some, you know, so in other words, um, it works better when you do it more aggressively. It makes it makes it easier when you're on board with it more consistently. Absolutely. Have you ever been to like a veg fest? Yeah, I go to these veg. You know, it's funny because I was just at where was I just this weekend? Oh, was at a conference. I'm not gonna. I want to name of the conference because it was one of really a, a plant based conference with really good with other with myself as and other very good speakers. But the food and the and the wine and the fake cheese and all the salt, all the stuff they served Pete there was very disappointing because we had us presenters on the stage and what they, what the people went out of when they left the, to go and to eat was all unhealthy food or had the, or most people were still reveling and recreating with dangerous substances, even at this plant-based conference, which is supposed to be all these great speakers, you know, absolutely. Maybe tell me, later, which it was, I'm curious, but we, you know, I hear so much from, you know, cause I'm an ethical vegan. I became vegan 47 years ago, strictly for ethical reasons. But I hear that we make it so much harder for people to become vegan. If, if we have these restrictions for healthy eating. Yeah. Well, that's okay. You know, it's, there's enough people doing the watered down version. It's my niche to do the not the non watered down version. You know what I mean? We don't have to do You know, so maybe there's some value in some people, appealing, being a watered down version, trying to reach out to larger numbers. I'm still, my niche and my interest is to, and I, and you know, I love reversing people's disease processes. And my career has been taking care of the sickest people with middle severe medical problems who can't. Um, and I, I get tremendous satisfaction watching these people reverse their illnesses like lupus and psoriasis and heart disease and diabetes, you know, and people come to me in our retreat and they, they're, but in any case, um, that's somebody else's job to water it down. There's enough of those people who are watering it down and getting people <laughs> to be somewhat healthier than they're eating now, do better than the Mediterranean diet, you know, like doctor this, doctor that, all these people giving better than better than average diets, but they're not going to be as, um, you know, neurotically excellent as what I do, but it's not really neurotic. It's just obviously people think it that way. It's really just giving people what's best. And once you know what's best, then you could decide for yourself what to do and how much of that you want to adopt in your life. But you got to know what's best to know what, not say something that's watered down, not as best, is the best. And that's right. what everybody does, you know. 
I love this. Dr. Joel Furman, non-watered-down nutrition. You know, when you think about it, the way that you recommend to eat is like how our ancestors ate throughout most of human history. It's it's considered bizarre and restrictive now, but that's all that was available. Yeah, for sure. You know. It's it's just man, it just I get it just gets my panties in a bunch because you know, it's also what people don't understand is like you, I don't think you've ever had weight problems or, or food addiction problems. You couldn't keep eating this way if the food wasn't delicious and you didn't love it. And the thing is, is it can be, it, it, if people weren't eating crap, they would love our food. That's right. And you know, it's funny because, you know, I have a retreat here with five chefs that, and it's, I go up, my wife sometimes and I, you know, it's a birthday, it's something we want to go to like a, a, a nice vegan restaurant. The food never or if not, never tastes as good as what we have right here at home with our recipes, with our chefs. In other words, what I'm saying is it's so delicious. It's like going to a five star restaurant every night. If the food, you know, what do you, you know, why not eat it? If you can learn how to make it taste great, um, why not eat healthy? It's not tasting better or giving you more enjoyment in life. It's to give up your, to sacrifice your health to poor eating. In any case, you know, we love what we eat and we love the food. I'm a foodie. I'm a real foodie, you I know, know loving what I eat, you know. I, I agree with you. Do you ever go to Plumeria in San Diego? Plumeria? I don't think so. That's I don't I don't know anything about it. It's just my friend that lives there says it's his favorite restaurant and he can even take non-vegan people there, which means it's probably a little yeah. bit hyper palatable. But do you think that sugar is sugar? Because a, a lot of times people play this game that, you know, well, my sugar's less bad than yours. So in other words, when we talk about sugar, when you when I talk about anything that's not fruit, when I talk about sugar, but people feel, well, you know, maple syrup's a little bit better, agave, you know, you know, all these other things. Yeah. Go all the same. Bad. Yeah. But what about monk fruit and Lohan and, you know, stevia and erythritol? I mean, isn't it all pretty much not health promoting? Well, it's a degree. First of all, my biggest gripe is when people think these these salts are OK. You know, these not these natural salts, Celtic salt and whatever it is, rock from the salt from the rock. The deepest part of the sea. Who cares where it's from? It's still 2,300 milligrams of sodium per teaspoon. And per teaspoon, not per tablespoon. It's still dangerously dangerous to your lifespan to eat any kind of salt. But then the sugars, yes. I mean, certainly I'm saying honey, maple syrup, and sugar are all equally equally dangerous with with regular. But monk fruit, stevia, and those low those things are not as dangerous because they're not putting a high glucose rush into your bloodstream, which is the most dangerous for the brain and most addicting. However, stimulating the, neurolog the neurological system with sweets still increases craving for and desire for more calories and more sweets and still deadens the taste buds. So you still don't think that a, a, a wild blueberry tastes sweet or something. So I'm still not an advocate of stevia, lohan, monk fruit, unless used in very small amounts occasionally to just make bring something up. But it's not in the same, it's not in the same degree of negativity as sugar, maple syrup, and honey. Those are much worse because they flood the body with real glucose. And then you have a huge amount of insulin that responds in response to that glucose load. And it's the insulin glucose simultaneously rise that allows cancer cells to replicate and promotes angiogenesis and promotes fat storage and cell growth and things that shouldn't be doing, that your body shouldn't be doing. That's dangerous to the body. So it's much more dangerous to take in those types of sugars. But even the ones you say that are maybe a little bit more favorable, why can't people just use fruit like dates or, or other dried fruits or even things like bananas? 
Absolutely, on the same page. Because when they use those artificial sweeteners, they they go up the big, make things too sweet. They go up past the bliss point. They're really, and they're just making things too unnatural. That's right. If you, you know, I don't even think that, like when we make desserts that are really fantastic, we don't even allow them to have more than a, one date per dessert serving for sweetening. Actually, and in the recipes here at the retreat, it's only, let's say for 10 people, we only put five dates in there for 10 people to sweeten their dessert if they needed it. And sometimes the pineapple and the banana, whatever is in the dessert is sweet enough. We don't even need the date. But if you need the date where you're adding something like cocoa powder or, or cocoa nibs that are bitter, then we're still just using a little bit of date, not that much, even not that much date. So we're still keeping the glucose grams low. And even in my G-bombs bars that I talked about a minute ago, um, we still have the grams of glucose in the bar because we're still keeping the dates low enough to not to make it so sweet like a conventional, like other bars that are date nut bars that it can have 15 to 20 grams of sugar in the bar. And our bars are like seven to nine grams of sugar in them. You know what I mean? Because we're, we're not making it quite, even it's not as much date percent. Right. And they're still, and they're still great tasting, you know? But people have to get used to it because, and I feel like the problem I have with those like stevia and things like that is they make it like kind of a fake high natural, like high sweetness that they, then they can't really appreciate fruit or other. Absolutely. Absolutely. On the same page. Well, you know, Dr. Furman, I wrote a book that's coming out next year and you were kind enough to endorse it. And even though it's all fruit sweetened, I can barely eat anything in my book anymore because the longer it's been over 20 years since I've had sugar. And last night we had a meetup. We have a huge vegan community here in the Sacramento area. And I brought desserts that I made in this webinar. And compared to like standard American desserts, it was a pumpkin pie and a, and a peanut butter mousse. It was probably less sweet, but it was like, like I just wanted grapes. Like I can't even eat my own food anymore because it's it's just too sweet for me. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Like my daughters make these stuff that are healthy, you know, healthy desserts. And I eat them. I go, oh, that's way too sweet. I don't want something. I want a healthy, you know, if I'm going to make it, I'm not going to put all that date in there and all that. It's, it's way too over the top sweet. You know, right. absolutely. We're, we're, you know. We're, we're kindred spirits, but one could argue that for somebody like for me, having been such a severe sugar addict, Coke Slurpees for breakfast, those dates is what helped me get off sugar 20 years ago. But now they're just, you know, they're anyway. But anyway, I appreciate your your take on this. And a lot of people have written, oh, you know, before I get to the questions, the same thing with oil and salt, you know, the, the more flexible vegan programs that people, you know, feel it's just too hard because they can't go to restaurants. And, you know, here's the thing, the people that can't do it the way that you recommend isn't 90 percent better than not doing anything is what 90 percent better than not doing anything? no i mean like people yeah. that can't be compliant 100 percent or abstinent or can't do the non-watered down program is it better that they do something than do nothing well being overweight is very dangerous to the to body's survival and um there's no such thing as a healthy overweight person and people who are overweight want to think they're healthy, quote, healthy, overweight. And um, it's not my thing. I want to, to encourage people to be to be protected against more serious tragedies. And I want people to achieve normal lifespan, which is between 97 and 107 years old. So that's normal lifespan, 97 to 107 years old, but only one in 100 people may um, achieve that. So what I'm saying is that um, they could do what they want, but if they really want to expect to uh, achieve great health and avoid those tragedies, they, you know, and, and to be a nutritarian, the term nutritarian means that you're eating very healthfully, 
and you're at your ideal weight, or you're eating very healthfully and you're moving in the direction of your ideal weight every week. So if you're not losing weight and you're overweight, then you're not on the nutritarian program because your diet is still not aggressive enough for you to achieve optimal health. And that may have to do with the type of food you're eating, how much you're eating, the timing of when you're eating it. All these things are, are, are part of this whole lifestyle program that it has people achieve better health that protects them against the tragedies before other Americans. So the question is, you know, is for a person that's relatively healthy, you know, is 10%, is 90% enough? Is 80% enough? Is 95% enough? So, you know, um, we see that, um, I also gave some of the data on this subject that when you're doing, um, for a person that's otherwise healthy, 95% or greater adherence you're, the chance of a person developing heart disease is almost non-existent. And many of the heart disease reversal programs like Dean Ornish didn't, didn't have people, uh, didn't necessarily, didn't require them to achieve 100% perfection. They could still have some egg whites, some white yogurt, some little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they still got reversal, right? Um, but, yeah. once you go, but once you start to approach 10%, 15%, then you start where genetic influences start taking can take over and you start see maybe not everybody getting sick, but once you go to 30, you know, a diet which has so much processed foods and animal products, then everybody's going to get sick if you eat American style. But as you move towards the more moderate improvements, like a Mediterranean diet, that's when genetics play a role more, where some people are doing really badly and some people do okay, right? And then it's a crapshoot. If you're doing this moderately like a Mediterranean diet, then it's crapshoot and you're relying on luck. And I don't want to live with fear and with luck because now genetics don't play a role once you push it up all the way. Now you have protected no matter what your genetics are. You follow me? So that's so it really is, you know, do I want to just take a crapshoot? I'm going to live to be past 95 or I'm going to really assure myself I'm going to have full mental faculties, full physical, be able to enjoy my life in, for those for that next 25 years for me. And I want to assure that I don't want to take, make it be a crapshoot. So I'm guessing you're probably thinking the blue zones is not far enough. That's exactly the, the reality. Blue zones are not examples of good diets. They're examples of better diets than the junk food diet Americans are eating. In other words, you don't buy a car by comparing it to a junkyard wreck because it's better than the junkyard wreck. The American diet is the worst diet that could be designed by any person if they were trying to kill us. I always say it's been designed by ISIS to kill people, you know? And you know, I was on television on my show on PBS and I said, this diet's been designed by Al Qaeda. And I said that on television and they dubbed me and they took it out and they had another person's voice come in. I'm watching myself on television and it says, this diet's been designed by Darth Vader. Darth Vader, that's not even funny. That's it's Al Qaeda is the joke, you dummy. <laughs> Don't put Darth take my. <laughs> so, oh my god, that's hilarious. Isn't that kind of weird that they wouldn't let me say Al Qaeda on television? That is something. this guy. It's been designed by Al Qaeda. But anyway, so yeah, it's 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 sure the blue zones are better and live longer, but they don't, the blue zones, the average late lifespan compared to Americans are like eight years, eight to ten years longer. The Americans live to be. You know, between males and females, 76 to 78, you know, around 80, under 80. So they're living still under 90, 88 to 92 in those areas or, or 80, you know, the bell-shaped curve stretches out. And that's still only halfway there of what we have, to, what was possible for us to achieve. We can add another decade of life with a nutritarian diet it goes way beyond what blue zones do. 
Yeah. But are the are they living as long now in the blue zones? I mean, they were, but they seem to eat their offspring don't seem to be living as long. Of course. Of course. Because so many people use that to justify things like drinking alcohol. Well, you know, they drink they drink alcohol at the blue zones, you know? Or or putting oil or putting olive oil over your food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just in Sardinia. I was just in a person of, I was in Puglia last year, put a whole group of people. And the amount of um, overweight Italians pouring all the olive oil, olive oil and eating those sugary drinks. And it's just like, there's, you know, so they have a little better health than Americans do. Big deal, you know. So what? But they're, not, they're not in great health. They're not in good health. Even some of the people that we both respect and admire colleagues, even in the field of cardiology, are recommending olive oil now. Yes. And many people, as you know, in this nutritional advisement field are not examples of good health and not living the, you know, living examples of it. You know, you know I know you've heard about fat shaming and but, but what about I, mean, I feel like there's an opposite thing, like almost like when people are doing a good job that we get shamed, too. Um, and I feel like doing it 100 percent is actually easier than doing it 90 percent, because for me, uh Going back and forth is much harder than just doing it all the time, you know, whether it's exercising every day or eating right every day, because I, look, I'm not perfect. I'm not Dr. Goldhammer. I've, I, I don't really have slips, but I've had some non-compliant food now and then, like in a restaurant or whatever. And then I find that even though I can go back to my diet right away, it's like, I'm thinking about it all the time. And it's like, I'd rather just like every meal that I make and love it and not have to think about, you know, what do you know what I mean? Like it just seems that's exactly, easier. That's exactly the way I feel. I'm not saying I'm always perfect, but I'm but I love eating this way and I'm do better with staying consistently strict on the program when I do really do it all the time. And when I with the more you slip, so absolutely. Uh, I'm right there with you with everything you just said. I'm shaking my head in agreement. Yeah, and there's some people makes, I, you feel more content and more and less stress when you're when like if I'm going to a restaurant or going out to eat or something with people, I want to have um, the I want healthy food. The more you're in an unhealthy place with nothing to order and you're more tempted to have the white bread on the table, that's not a good time for me. It's more stressful. That's why my I'm having my 70th birthday party um, here next month. Be 70? Yeah, 70. Can you believe it? No, I really can't. Like December, you're like December 5th or 10th or yeah, December 2nd. So, so what I said to my kids and everybody said, said we'll have, we're going to, not going to go out. We're just going to do, bring a dish. I like the food that we make our better, the version, and you bring a healthy dish that you think is one of my favorites that I'm going to like. We'll just have it here at our house. You know, that's, that's what I prefer to do since it's my birthday. I'm making that choice, you know? God, I, I know I, I have something, I'm going to get you a present. I got something in mind. You're going to, it's not food, but you're going to love it anyway. Well, congratulations. That is, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, you know, there's people like my husband that can have a rich meal or I mean, always vegan, but, you know, oil, yeah. sugar, salt. Yeah. And then the next morning still eat greens for breakfast and enjoy them. But I find with other people, because I'm worried about the people, because tomorrow's Halloween. And I've known so many people that that one little slip, you know, because they they feel like they have to have the candy and they'll have a fun size Snickers bar. And right. then they can't get back on track. And then by January 2nd, they're, you know, 10 or 15 pounds heavier and stuck in the pleasure trap. It derail. It can derail them, and you know. And look, it's self-destructive behavior. Why are we glorifying or making it acceptable to be self-destructive? Is it okay that they just recreate with cocaine? How about you know, you know, people are going to say this is a ridiculous comparison, but 
but it's not a ridiculous comparison because you're gambling with your life and you're doing things that are self-destructive. Why not do something constructive that you can enjoy? Why not have learned to recreate that doesn't involve things that are going to damage your future? You know, so there's absolutely that it's because people are doing it around us and we're living in a society that encourages it doesn't mean it's 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 the right thing to do and that we're radical because we don't drink alcohol or don't eat, eat sweets or desserts or, or, or eat dangerous foods. And particularly all those people who are at risk of developing diseases, they're better off using every day and every meal and every mouthful making it count towards protecting their future. They should not be deviating to putting themselves at risk or gambling with their own future. Every mouthful counts and every day of eating healthfully counts on your road to protecting your body against later life disease. Okay, let's get into some questions from the public yeah, here. Absolutely. Just one one real quick. People say, though, that it, it like it, the kids should be have to be able to enjoy their childhood and eat treats at the party. And, and then they feel weird and different if they're the only ones eating like this. What do you say to that? I have four kids and they were well adjusted and they my kids couldn't ever figure out why parents kept forcing and encouraging their kids to, to eat unhealthy foods. They saw the attraction of candy and unhealthy foods, but they didn't understand why parents were pushing it on their kids. What are they bringing into the soccer games for if it's not good for them? And I'm saying, why are they, don't they love their kids? And I'm saying, yeah. so they understood the attraction and they, we never put pressure on them. They, they loved it. They used to bring kids over our house to taste all our healthy shakes and all our healthy, you know, we make ice creams with carob and, and these Tupperware, you know, freeze pops and stuff. And they'd be sharing and be excited about how healthy their food tastes. And they have the option to eat unhealthy food if they went out to a party or something. We're not looking over them, criticizing them, but they had a lot of self-awareness you know, of saying, well, maybe I'll just taste it and saying, and most of the time they said, they don't even like it. It's just too sweet. And it felt too decadent. They didn't even like it. They much, in other words, they preferred our healthy versions more than the unhealthy versions when they had the opportunity to, and they didn't feel deprived at all. Thank you. First question from Vicki. Dr. Furman, does the white potato have any place in the nutritarian weight loss strategy? Any comments on why or why not? Uh, I don't know. I use some white potato, like I'm making a, a cauliflower or a mashed potato. I'll put eight cups of cauliflower to one Yukon gold potato with, you know, with fried onion that's dry fried in a pan without any oil and, and maybe some roasted and some roasted garlic. I'll make, you know, a delicious um, cauliflower baked potato because it's lower in calories. The reason is, is most of our clients here are, have metabolic issues, diabetes with, you know, food addiction or food overweight. And they, they're only eating a limited amount of calories each day. They're not just eating 3,000 calories a day. They're eating between 1,200 and 1,400 a day usually. So we, so we um, put carbohydrates on a hierarchical scale of quality, and we prioritize beans, lentils, and peas over potatoes and rice because they have more anti-cancer effects. They're lower glycemic. They're more satisfying and create not only more protein, more resistant starch and more fiber, but they slow gastric emptying, make people less hungry, and they have more protein in them as, as well. So we're, when we're looking to remove food from the diet, then we can take out the food that's not as beneficial as the, as the bean or the pea or the, you know, so we're going to use less potato and rice. But if I'm, but if me personally, or I'm doing a training or I'm running for 15 miles or whatever it is, I'm going out on a hike for two hours. In other words, a, an athlete who needs more calories, they can have more of those foods in their diet to fill in because they're eating all the greens and beans and all the healthy foods already. So they can put some white potato, some other foods they like that are healthy, wholesome foods like that. 
But as you move towards lower caloric needs, and a lot of women who are not, you know, have lower caloric needs, it's better to reduce or remove the white potato so you can accommodate and fit the beans and the peas and the lentils and the, and the, and the purple sweet potato and the butternut and spaghetti squash. There are other carbohydrates that are hierarchical or more nutritious than the white potato. Sure. And do you consider the Yukon gold and the red one white potato still? Yeah, yeah, well, it's, you know, the, I think the purple potatoes, you know, the purple sweet potatoes are healthier than the, you know, so, yeah, and I'm just trying to make the diet as good as I can and make it taste great, too. And so we'll, sometimes I use a little white potato because I like the flavor to make yeah. it certain dishes, but I'm not making the whole potato the whole meal. you know. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Yeah. Furman, you teach G-bombs that incorporates the highest nutritional density foods in one diet. What processor information led you to narrow down these categories as the most powerful and essential daily? Well, it's, and both, by the way, I'm not narrowing down the diet to eating only G-bombs. It was funny because um, Ocean was, Ocean Robbins, a friend of mine, and you know, people know who he is too. He was putting out this thing about Dr. Furman's G-bombs. And by accident in the story, it said Dr. Furman's diet is 90% G-bombs or all G-bombs. And I said, no, no, Ocean, that's, that's not right. I want people to remember to eat them every day, but they can eat other foods too besides G-bombs. It's just, I want them to remember to include the G-bombs every day. And the reason I have those six foods, um, the story started with Mary Lou Henna. Do you know who she is? She once took a cooking class from me when I lived in LA, yes. Okay, so the story started there because I was doing a, a promotion with her and, and, and she said to me, um, why don't you have an, an acronym of the words like five or six, we can make up a word that has the most, like the five or six most powerful longevity promoting foods or cancer promoting foods. So I said, sure. And I said, the most data on fighting cancer are in these foods, greens, onions, mushrooms. And then we, then Mary Lou said, how about gnomes? or gnomes or something, or something. <laughs> you know, so, so I started using that term and then we came up with G-bombs after that. But in any case, yes, the, the word G-bombs, greens, beans, onions, mushrooms, berries, and seeds are not in any particular order. It's put in that way just so it spells the word bombs because it sounds good, G-bombs. And, um, but they're just six foods that have the most scientific data to show two things. One is when you eat them, they prevent cancer in your future. And number two, if you have cancer, they make you live long, longer and reduce the risk of cancer recurrence. And in a radical way, you know, more than drug, you know, these foods, and when you combine them synergistically, they have more an effect at preventing cancer and, and increasing lifespan in cancer, people who have cancer, more than chemotherapy or any other cancer interventional therapy does. So I'm saying collectively eating a diet rich in G-bombs, and I'm making this radical claim, right? is more effective than conventional cancer therapies for common cancers, like colon, like colon, like um, breast cancer and prostate cancer. I'm not saying it's more effective when you have acute blastocytic leukemia or a, um, or a highly aggressive early, early life metastatic, um, or early life breast cancer, premenopausal breast cancer, but the garden variety slowly um, moving cancers like postmenopausal estrogen positive breast cancer and prostate cancer do better long, longevity wise with a giant high in G-bombs than they do compared to using conventional therapy. So yes, there are foods that are isolated to have beneficial effects on human lifespan, more so than other foods, but I just picked the top six. It doesn't mean that there aren't other foods too that are beneficial. Great, thank you. This is from Renee. Dr. Furman, it's my understanding, if, if I'm correct, that you advocate abstinence for weight loss. There are experts 
that say the opposite, that abstinence will lead to the opposite effect. Who is right and why? We kind of covered this a little bit at the beginning. Yeah, we might have covered it in another show that I, I don't know what the word abstinence means in this case, but I'm agreeing with a degree. Let's go over this just briefly. When people fast or they cut back calories too much, like, like juice fasting or or, intimate, or um, intermittent fasting where they're doing 500 calorie days and then they're going to you know 1200 calorie days. For many people with food addiction, when you cut the calories down too low, it actually makes them emotionally flare up. Their addictions can emotionally flare after the period of extreme caloric restriction. You have a higher probability of long-term benefits when you don't bring caloric restriction to that extreme with juice fasting, intermittent fasting. Yes, we use time-restricted eating. It's a type of food, um, intermittent fasting, where people aren't eating after six o'clock at night, but we're not giving them days with 500 calories. And then we're keeping them up in, in the 1100, 1200 to 1600 calorie range. Most people trying to lose, most women trying to lose weight. Males could be, you know, 1400 to 1700. We're talking about, we're keeping them a reasonable amount of calories because if you, and we're trying to get them to learn how to repeat this and regulate this for the rest of their life. As you move to this diet and mentality and going too strict, it could trigger some people to go the other way and to go into periods of extreme dieting with, with overeat, with, followed by overeating, which is not good for their health. So we're trying to get consistency. So I'm not going to extreme abstinence. I'm not recommending that. So that part we agree on. What I'm talking about abstinence is abstaining from things that are destructive to your health, abstaining from alcohol and sweets and honey and salt. Yes, um, um, because when you don't abstain from those things, for many people, it triggers them to want them more and more and makes the diet more difficult. So yeah, there are people that don't agree with me that want people to, and you know, and, and that what I'm saying is not right for everybody. There's not one size fits all, you know, that some people are not an addict, some people could just do better with and doesn't have to be 100% abstinent and they could still do okay. But for most people, and for most people with food addiction who have struggled with their weight, it's better, we find, and I've been doing this for 40 years, that it increases the probability of long-term success if they're abstinent from their addictive triggers and they try to improve their health with help, learn how to love healthy eating. And I am relatively abstinent from those things myself because I find that I enjoy my life, feeling good, sleeping better, not waking to pee all night long. My life my and how I feel and how I perform is better when I'm abstinent from those foods that are not healthy or those substances that are not in my best interest. So yes, I'm encouraging a form of abstinence, but not calorically not excessive caloric restriction. Right, and people need to know themselves. And I would ask them, well, how's it working for you, you know? Yeah, and, and also, um, I do use therapeutic water fasting occasionally with people with asthma or lupus therapeutically, but I'm not using it with a person with food addiction and obesity. I'm using it with a person who's eating healthy and still I'm getting them off inhalers from asthma and I want to take the rest of their inhalers away without them flaring up again. So I put them on a water fast, it's going to curtail the activity of their immune system and I can get them off the inhalers so they can breathe normally and not have to go back on steroids again. So I, have, so I might be utilizing that therapeutically but it's not a primary intervention for weight loss. It doesn't usually work for weight loss. You've got to teach people how to live consistently for the rest of their life. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you. This is from Patty. Dr. Furman, how do IGF-1 and AGEs occur with sugar and not just animal products? Well, that is a correct statement as well. We have a very um, educated 
crowd here. Um, in any case, um, yes, if you overeat food, it, it increases IGF-1. Just if you're eating more calories than you need, it doesn't even have to be animal protein. Animal protein raises IGF-1 into unfavorable levels when you don't overeat calories. Just eating the right amount of calories, but the amount of animal protein then becomes a primary regulator of IGF-1, driving it too high, even if you're not overweight or not overeating. But you, even if you eat relatively healthfully, your IGF-1 could still be too high if you regularly overeat, and particularly if you're overeating carbohydrates or um, high glycemic carbohydrates raise IGF-1 even more. Now, don't forget, even protein like meat raises insulin, but sugar raises insulin more than meat does, but they both raise insulin, especially when you overeat them. So we're trying to eat the right amount of calories and the right type of protein. And I'm saying here that as you eat more animal protein, you have higher risk of premature death. And as you eat more plant protein, you live longer. This is what the plant-based community has not discussed too much of late. And that is a diet designed to be richer in plant protein leads to less sarcopenia, less brain shrinkage, less osteoporosis, and more lifespan than one. So protein does matter on, plant, on a plant-based diet. So we're eating plant foods that are richer in protein compared to eating olive oil as a source of calories, which has no protein. The more you oil up your plate, the more you're taking protein off your plate. The more you use sugar the more and honey, the more, the more you're taking calories off your plate that could have had protein because the high protein plant foods are vegetables, intact whole grains, beans, nuts and seeds. And, you know, I said vegetables already, but are, are, so though are everything except fruit, so we're, as we age, we need more protein and having a diet richer in beans and greens and nuts and seeds and whole grains gives us adequate protein. Whereas we start to be sloppy with our diet, you know, white rice, white bread, oil, you know, sugar, honey, you've then cut, you've cut the protein off your plate and you have more sarcopenia, osteoporosis and brain shrinkage with aging. And also two more things, your brain size with aging is proportional to your waistline. The larger your waistline, the smaller your brain volume smaller waistline, larger brain volume, and proportional to your omega-3 index, higher omega-3 index, in other words, six to eight omega-3 index, larger brain volume, more intellectual and cognitive creativity and memory when you're aging, when the omega-3 index is more elevated. And, and every study, more than 20 studies at this point, have corroborated the information that smaller omega-3 index leads to smaller brain value, volume and more cognitive impairment. So we have the data, we have the science, we know how to maximize brain protection and brain volume with aging, and now we only have to implement it. Great, thank you. Uh, this is from Kit, and she her question is, Dr. Furman, what, um, what have you seen clinically in your patients that has led you to reduce the amount of B12 in your multivitamin to 75 micrograms daily? She has a really long email. I guess she's had some symptoms from having had too much B12. And Right. You know, you pick a number that you feel will benefit the large majority of people, 98, 90% of people, right? So you got to, but that doesn't mean you're picking a number that benefits everybody because some people require less and some people may require more. Just like people with pernicious anemia may be better off on taking 500 micrograms a day, not 75, but I'm not making the multi for people with pernicious anemia. There still requires every few years getting a blood test and making sure your level of B12 is adequate for you. And of course, while we're mentioning that, the, the 
Um, the B12 normal range is between 250 and 1,000, let's say. But I'm saying here that a B12, B12 level above a 400 is okay. Um, but if it runs between 200 and 400, you don't know if it's okay or not. It probably still could be okay if it's between 200 and 400. And the way to know if that's okay, if the lower range is okay, is by getting an MMA, a methylmalonic acid, or even a homocysteine, which also elevates with real B12 deficiency. So if your homocysteine and your MMA did not elevate it, then your level of 300 in your blood was adequate. So 99% of people are going to, on a vegan diet are going to be adequate with taking between 50 and 100 micrograms of B12 a day. And those that are not can have their blood tested and can adjust it accordingly. Great. Thank you. This is from Gail. Dr. Furman, if I have a green smoothie with one tablespoon of flax and one tablespoon of chia seeds for breakfast, and then have walnuts in a salad later on the same day, it comes to about 30 grams of fat. Is this too much fat to eat if I want to lose weight as a postmenopausal woman? No, not at all. It's actually, if it helps facilitate weight loss. Let me say that one more time. That adding a half an ounce of nuts and seeds with your beans and greens in the meal actually reduces gastric emptying and makes it so that you are going to be satisfied for many hours after the meal and not have to snack or feel like eating before you get to your next meal, helping you feel com more comfortable with the right amount of calories. So it's actually an advantage. And let's say you're going to an ounce and a half of nuts a day, which is about, you know, 170 calories an ounce. So an ounce and a half is about 220 calories a day. You can still take in around 200 calories of nuts a day and be on any, and using in sauces or in a smoothie. Or, and the other thing we're talking about is the ALA from the nuts and seeds you just mentioned stabilize the heart against cardiac arrhythmia. And we know that it reduces the risk of atrial fibrillation because you said flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, and walnuts. And those four substances, flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, and walnuts, are high ALA containing nuts and seeds that have effect to stabilize cardiac irritability and reduce the risk of a cardiac arrhythmia, sudden cardiac death, or developing an atrial fibrillation. So the fact that you're eating the ounce and a half a day or a half an ounce with each meal or 10 grams, you know, or you're eating that shows that you're doing the right thing for your long-term health. Absolutely, that's a good thing you're doing. It's not gonna impede weight loss. The average person at our retreat loses um, 20 pounds a month eating an ounce and a half of nuts and seeds a day. 20, the average person loses 20 pounds a month on this program at the beginning, but then they then they slow down to about 15 pounds a month the second month and 10 pounds, and they can stay between eight to 10 pounds a month of weight loss thereafter until they're within 10 pounds of their ideal weight. And then they start to slow down to a little bit lower. But but in any case, they're losing weight as fast as they need to. And there's no reason that you have to speed do anything more radical than that. And the reason you're picking an ounce and a half of nuts, a half an ounce with each meal, the reason picking that number is because the data from the Seventh-day Adventist Health Stew study has been corroborated with other studies. And they divided nut and seed intake into five different quintiles. And in the lowest quintile, below a half an ounce a day, they had 40% increased risk of cardiovascular death compared to the highest quintile, which was greater than an ounce and a half a day. So by going from a half an ounce to an ounce to an ounce and a half, we show dramatic lowering of the death rate and risk of irregular heartbeats. The body does need some fat for good health. And so we're, so by doing that, reducing, we're helping people live longer and protecting their heart and their brains. Um, and we're also adding more flavor to the sauces and the dressings. And they're not eating free nuts. They're not snacking on them. They're not eating them, pouring them on the food. They're measured out. 
So they're getting exactly half an ounce with each meal. So we know they're still within the caloric confines of their diet. You follow me? They're not overeating on calories by eating too many nuts. Right. Do you agree? I was recently at True North and Dr. Clapper was there the week I was there. We were roommates actually. And he gave this wonderful lecture and he talked about that when you do eat fat, you want to eat it with greens and not with like starch. Do you, do you agree with that? Um, I don't know because I'm suggesting that we should eat um, a little bit of fat with each meal. And, and each meal should have greens in it too. And each meal should have, like the main meal um, should have some beans. Let me make this clear. Some beans, even if it's a small amount and some greens and some fat. And if you have those three, the beans, the greens and the fat, that has the effect to get more satiation, slow gastric emptying, make you satisfied with less calories. Um, so even my, so there's some starch, there's some, and their beans are high in protein because all their starch is not absorbable anyway. So beans are a relatively high protein food. When you add, so we're getting so we're getting the meals. You know what was really interesting? I analyzed how much protein the nutritarian diet had, and I compared it to the British study on vegans having higher risks of osteoporosis. Because in the vegan study, they had the protein content of the people who were on vegan diets. They were eating a lot of bread and rice and oil. Their protein content was around ten to twelve percent of the diet, which was low compared to a vegan diet. And then we can analyze the protein content of the meat-based diet which was between like 14 and 16% protein. Because what I'm saying was the nutritarian diet had more protein in it than the v- than the meat-based diet did. Because they were also eating more sugar and more oil and more empty. They were eating so many empty calorie foods, even though they were having meat and eggs in their diet, they were still eating so many foods that had so little protein that the nutritarian diet, because they had regular greens and beans and nuts and seeds, even had more protein and more calcium than the, than the non-plant-based diet. You know what I mean? So it had the best calcium source and the best protein source to support bones and muscles with aging. But back to the original question um, about when to eat your fat. So yeah, I, you know, we have a little starch in the morning, maybe with a little oats or amaranth or millet, but not a lot with some berries, right? And then maybe some seeds from flax seeds or chia seeds with a little plant milk in, maybe that's breakfast. And then for lunch might be green vegetables with a, with a mushroom and bean soup, might have little beans in the soup with a salad, with a nut, you know, so that, and then the dinner has usually some walked vegetables and a little, so of course um, I'm suggesting spacing it out. And yes, um, Dr. Clapper is making this point that the money's in the greens, that greens are the food that shows the most correlation with longer lifespan and, and being a, a healthy centenarian that the more greens you eat, the more increases, the more than other foods, more than starchy vegetables, greens are more power, especially broccoli and, you know, increasing your chance of living longer. And by adding nuts to the meals with greens, you get more benefit from those absorption of those lifespan enhancing and anti-cancer phytochemicals. So if you're going to have those nuts and seeds, better off having them with a meal that has more green vegetable portions in them. But still, I don't think of it that way because I have greens with every meal. You know what I mean? I, have, right. I express it out. I express it out and have some nuts and seeds with each meal anyway. So it shouldn't matter much. I think I do too. Greens at every meal. That should be your campaign slogan when you run for public office. Okay. This is from Anonymous. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the non-watered down candidate. Uh, right, exactly. Dr. Furman, I'm in my 50s, a female with a very stressful professional job. Whenever anything hugely stressful happens to me at work or I get particularly overwhelmed, I feel compelled to go find fatty and sugary junk food and processed food without thought. I'm totally vegan and gluten-free, but still struggling with the SOS. How do I stop this? 
Well, here's a perfect example of what we've been talking about the whole day today. This person is a food addict. That's how food addicts think, and that's how food addicts talk. And there's always, a, you know, and as we, you're a smoking addict or a cocaine addict, they always have an excuse or a reason or a stress. That's always the case. But, they're, but they don't realize that they're going into alcohol, going into food, go, makes their stress worse. And, it may, and their addicts don't solve their problems. That they're, it, it, it actually makes their brain become less creative. And they're, as they become going to their food binge, their brain, it dummies down their brain, their creativity, their ability to solve the stresses in life and have, and be a better and perform better. So they're, they're deluding themselves where they think, you know, they say, oh, if you had the stress that I had, you would, you'd smoke too, or you would be happy, you'd be, you know, my stress, but it doesn't add to their life's, it, it enhance, it increases their life stress. And part of their stress is their continual food addiction. The answer to their the question is, this person needs some assistance with abstaining from, from destructive foods during times of stress. She needs some assistance. She needs a buddy that's going to help her, you know, a family member. We have That's why I built this retreat in San Diego, because people are now having forced abstinence to stay from, uh, abstaining from their addictive triggers long enough. So the addictive triggers lose control, lose their control over their behavior. So you need enforced abstinence and you could do that at home. And if you can't enforce your own abstinence, then you have to create an environment of supportive people around you. Like when my mother was trying to quit cigarettes, we wouldn't let her, we wouldn't let her smoke cigarettes. We were around her making sure she didn't cheat. She didn't have cigarettes. You know. So you need a supportive environment around you because you're not, seem not able to handle this, but you're on your own. And, but doesn't mean it less, it doesn't mean it's not important for you to handle it. You just have to handle this and you need some extra help. And that help could be more counseling, more knowledge, more um, mindfulness, meditation, um, wisdom teachings, more teaching. So we need more information. And sometimes more information needs the social support and a social network or a safe place to go to. All these things might be necessary to put you back into a safer place where, you, where your addictions are not controlling your life, but where you're in total control of your life again. I love it. Good luck to you, though. Good luck on that. Thank you, Doctor. I'm here, and I'm here to help you with this. If you, yeah. if you need my help, your place is beautiful. I saw it once. You weren't there, but I was driving to Mexico, and you let me stop by. It's you cool. stopped by, and I wasn't here. Oh, yeah. It was gorgeous. Um, you've talked about this before, the dangers of regaining weight after you've lost it. And Andrea says, I effortlessly lost 41 pounds. I'm 410. I went from 127 to 86 during the pandemic going whole food plant-based, mostly SOS free. I regained 10 pounds by being less restrictive, but I'm mostly whole food plant-based. I've heard the expression, your attainable weight is not necessarily your sustainable weight. But I've also heard Dr. Furman say that regaining 10 pounds after a major weight loss can be more dangerous than the original overweight number. Losing those 10 pounds, again, has been much more challenging. Could Dr. Furman please expand on the dangers of regaining 10 pounds after losing 41? Thank you, Andrea. Sure. Um, thanks. Those are great questions, by the way. Very good question. Now, I'm saying here that to achieve excellent health and longevity, we have to achieve a favorable body fat percent. That the optimal BMI for a woman is between 18 and 21 for longevity, and that, re that corresponds with a body fat below 25% for a woman. For a male, the optimal BMI is between 19 and 22, and that corresponds with the body fat below 20, below 15%. My body fat at the age of 70, by the way, is about 11%. So here's the thing. Um, if you 
lost weight to your body fat went too low and you restricted calories and you got your body fat down to like 20 or 22% and you regained it back again to 24%, but you're still in the favorable range of body fat, then I'm saying it's not dangerous. It's not, you didn't put yourself in danger by regaining that weight. And if you put back muscle and your muscle and fat, I had a person here this month who came in at 112 and she left the retreat at 112, but she had taken off four pounds of body fat and put on three pounds of muscle when she was here. So more exercising, more hills, more whatever it is, better diet. She stayed at the same weight because that was a good weight for her, 112. But she actually reduced her body fat from an unfavorable range of 28% to a favorable range of 24% while she was here. You know, really amazing, right? So this is the key. So I don't know whether that extra 10 pounds that you regained was good or bad. But if you were in the overweight range, if your body fat was above 25% and you lost 40 pounds and you were still overweight, and if, when you lost the 40 pounds, you still had 20 more pounds to go. And then you gained back 10. We know the 10 you gained back were mostly saturated fats and you're pushing your weight, your fat content up over above the level of fat that was held, that was already bad to begin with. You gained more weight and that's going to accelerate metabolically more saturated fat deposition, raising cholesterol, more inflammation, more estrogen production, more inflammation. So then yes, gaining back the weight that quickly did a lot of bad for you if that's the case and you gained weight you've gained your weight in the range of unhealthy weight that shouldn't have been there to begin with. I hope that was maybe, a, I hope you understood what I'm just saying. So um, maybe you, the 10 pounds you gained back, I'm guessing now, maybe you overdid it a little bit. Maybe it was okay to put back on five pounds. Maybe you could have exercised with muscles and maybe, and you could have looked at your body fat percent and say, you know, I'm five pounds heavier. I don't have to be that light. I can have a little more muscle, a little more fat and still be in the healthy range. I'm a little stronger, a little bigger. That's okay. And not be so radically strict. That's probably okay. But you got to watch it because we don't want you going up into the range that's unhealthy now. You know what I mean? If you gain back too much. If you, so let's take a look at the details there and see what's best for you. Right. Well, Dr. Furman, I so appreciate you. I, we have more questions, but I want to respect your time. So you just tell me when you need to stop because, you know, people love you and they're, they're, they're staying on, but we can also have you come back too. Absolutely. Why don't we do one more question? Like in another, you know, another five minutes, then we'll call it quits. I just don't know which one to do. <sighs> All right. Well, I, I'll do this one because there's also, I can't take questions from the chat when there's, um, you know, people pre-submitted, but a lot of people were saying in the chat, what's a favorable omega-3 index, you know, when they get the test. And so one of the persons saying is, would you say that an omega-3 index 5.5 or higher is good for somebody trying to prevent neuro degeneration if they have essential tremors, but maybe you could just talk about just what's yes. omega-3 in general. That's correct. The answer is that we're striving to above 5.5, but for, for him, I'd say even go try to go above six, adjust your supplement. So you're above six, but keep in mind that once you adjust or increase the level of your supplement to try to get it above six, you have to not test it again for four months because it, you have to have turnover of red blood cells to allow the next measurement to be accurate. So you can't just recheck it again a month later. You have to wait like four or five months or four to six months and then recheck it to see if your level of diet, if the combination of your diet and your supplements are helpful to your index. And I'm also saying reducing body fat improves your omega-3 index because if you have excess body fat, you're going to have excess omega-6 fat on the body. You require more omega-3 levels to keep a favorable index. As we keep our body fat lower, we don't require as much supplemental omega-3 to keep a favorable index above six. I hope that answered your question, but yes, that's the number um, to be above five and a half or six, because that's what the studies show 
maximize lifespan, maximize brain size, and lower the risk of cognitive impairment. And I'm saying also Parkinson's disease in later life. You have more resilience and resistance against inflammatory compounds and chemicals when you have a better omega-3 index over the years, which then enables the brain to better protect itself. Right. Do you want to quickly talk about what we put in the show notes in the chat, the detox that starts today? Case oh, thanks, Rick, thanks for reminding me on that. I totally forgot that. Yeah. 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 Today we do like once a year, we do this program and I'm going to, and today's the day we just by luck that you invited I know. me. Next time, come on a little sooner, but sure. They, they still have an opportunity to join. There's a link and a discount right below. Just by luck, my detox program, my 21 day detox and weight loss challenge is happening starting today. And you could still um, join if you'd like to. And we have a whole series of um, helpful, supportive, motivational, social, educational, you know, so we're all doing it together. I'm doing it with you. You'll hear me be talking to me, doing questions with me and my and my staff and be helping to motivate you and keep you on track. And, and then we follow the 21 day detox. We give you the menu plans, the recipes and the support to do this. And we're all trying not to eat after six o'clock at night, by the way, we're all trying to recreate at night that doesn't involve food, you know? So, and then at the end of the, um, at the end of the next and the month after that, it begins a six month weight loss challenge where if you track your weight and continue to lose and submit us your results, then you, for when you win prizes, not that I'm saying that prizes or, or, you know, or discounts or anything is that it should be the motivating factor. It's just fun to be able to support the people that are doing this long-term and continuing to move their body in the healthier direction as we proceed through the months ahead. So yeah, yeah if you want to join me need that extra support, uh, come along, check out the link, link below and hope to see you there. Thank you so much, Dr. Furman. I really appreciate it when you come on. Happy Halloween. Thank you. Happy w Halloween or something else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Persimmon, persimmons are in season now. Let's enjoy them. Exactly. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 11 a.m. tomorrow when Faith Ralphs is going to be making a Halloween charcuterie board completely SOS free, vegan and delicious. Take care, everyone. Bye bye.